Just a word of thanks as we wrap up our online fundraising campaign. We've had an overwhelming response. We have been incredibly heartened by the over 1,000 people who've contributed. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm Krista Tippett, On Being. Today, Thin Places, Thick Realities, a new conversation in our series from Israel and the West Bank, listening for realities and possibilities that get hidden by headlines. When you're so caught up in your own story, especially in in a situation of conflict, you can't separate religion from the, the conflict that we're living, from the fears. And Jerusalem, if you can manage at least sometimes, to overcome your own fears and grievances. It's all here. It's so obvious when you open yourself to it what God is saying to humanity in this city. That's a vast statement. I sat down with Yossi Klein Halevi in Jerusalem to understand it. Stay with us. Religions evolve, says Yossi Klein Halevi. And whether we are religious or secular, we all have a stake in what happens in the Holy Land. With his voice, we continue unraveling meaning and identity in the Holy Land. We went there looking for realities and possibilities that get hidden by headlines. Yossi Klein Halevi, author, journalist, and son of a Holocaust survivor, grew up in Brooklyn and emigrated to Israel in the early 80s. He describes himself as spiritually devout but post-Orthodox. Politically, he speaks of two sides to himself that alternately emerge, one hawkish and one centrist. I sat down with him in Jerusalem, a place where he experiences the essential human story to play itself out with particular intensity. The Jewish story is about God taking a people, which is a random group of people, no better or no worse than any other people, and using this people as a test case for what happens when you have divine intimacy with human beings. It's not a group of saints, the Jewish people. And that's precisely the point. From APM American Public Media, I'm Krista Tippett. Today on Being in Israel and the West Bank, Thin Places, Thick Realities. I last spoke with Yossi Klein Halevi in 2006 in another tumultuous Middle Eastern moment. Israel was building a security wall, and Hamas had just come to power in Gaza. But I first discovered him by way of his 2001 book, written in the more hopeful era of the Oslo Peace Accords, at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, a Jew's search for God with Christians and Muslims in the Holy Land. Your book, um, At the Entrance to the Garden of Eden, was such a beautiful and hopeful book in many ways. Um, and I, I recommend it to people all the time still. Um, You're the one. <laughs> <laughs> and you had said to me that even by the time that book was published and the pub date was September 11th, 2001, you couldn't have written the same book. I mean, the second intifada was happening. But then when we spoke again in 2006... Um, I, I I was really aware of your pain and grief and that, that even there was a despair. Um, there was a distance even from that experience of praying and with your skull cap on in mosques. So 
here we are. What are we, five years later? I can't believe that. Um, one place I just wanted to start is by running something by you. This is, it's, a, it's a simple sentence that uh, someone uttered yesterday when we were on the, a tour of the old city. So let me just lay, set the scene, which will be very familiar to you. We have somebody who's we hired to help us here organize things here on the ground. He is a Palestinian with an Israeli passport. Uh, our tour guide yesterday of the old city was a Palestinian Christian. And then, without an Israeli passport. Without an Israeli passport. <laughs> a, a, a citizen of Jerusalem, which is then another... But, you know, it was interesting because he was showing us the old city and it took about 15 minutes. He, he was a, an objective tour guide for about 15 minutes. And then, when, and, then, <laughs> and then at a certain point, I think when we were in the Armenian quarter and he transitioned into the language of we, we Christians, um, it was very clear that, you know, we're getting a way of seeing mm-hmm. something very complex. And it's true with you, too, and right. you admit that. So, right. so this, this sentence, I don't remember who uttered it, there are no facts here. <laughs> <laughs> and it does seem true, Yossi, that uh, there are so many different histories and experiences that create ways of living facts that render the facts different. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, a very yeah, strange I, experience for someone coming in from the outside. You know, I think that one of the, the motives that I had for going on my journey into Islam and Christianity in this land was to try to expand my file of facts and to try to incorporate... And the, actually, uh, draw, could you draw up a list of true facts? Yes, <laughs> Whatever that means. And, and to really be... And to try to, to understand really how other communities here experience the same history and the same events. In, in a sense, I think that our, our reality is a kind of a Rashomon. And, and it's, it's not necessarily that there are different facts, but there are such radically different interpretations mm-hmm. of those same facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, uh, for me, as, a, as an American Jew who came home, and that's the language that I use, uh, I am part of a, an indigenous people that is being repatriated. Uh, for Palestinians, uh, I'm part of a colonialist wave that's, uh, that's threatening their sense of home. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I was trying, in, in some sense in this journey, to um, really to, to step out of my comfort zone and see how the same set of facts looks through other eyes. You know, you mentioned uh, that I, I had said to you that I, I would not have been able to write that book uh, after the collapse of the peace process and the suicide bombings began, and that's true, but I'm really grateful that I was able to do it before that happened. Well, and, you know, to that point, I absolutely understand what you say, what you mean when you say you couldn't write the book now, and yet I think the book continues to have value as you wrote it. You know, sometimes I'll pick it up and uh, and just briefly, at random, open it up and read out an experience and just be amazed. I said, "Wow, you know that that happened to me. It didn't happen to to someone else." So, um, say yeah. your, some of your experiences of shared prayer or something. I mean, those are some of the most um, really moving. Sections. And it reminds me of not just what's possible, but what once actually happened. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, so that I, I wouldn't say 
that I'm in despair. I wouldn't use that strong a language. I certainly don't feel that peace is possible anytime soon, but I, I have to believe uh, that this reality is not going to be permanent. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it stands as a testament for you of what really happened, for others of what is possible, what was possible, yes. what should, could, right. must, really must be possible again. Yes. Um, so here's something else I want to talk to you about, the whole notion of identity. And, you know, I think uh, we were sitting with you with uh, a group of 20-something aspiring journalists, and uh, I, I'm so aware that some of these basic concepts, uh, and this would be true of any nationality, but certainly that Americans bring, s- simply don't function here, right? I mean, identity mm-hmm. is a different... It's not just a different notion, it's a different experience. Um, I, I, I think it, it, it begins with a, a relationship to history, that's that's very foreign to the American sensibility. Uh, the greatness of America is that everyone could start all over again, and you can rewrite right. your, your your biography. You can uh, you can pick and choose how much of your past, your own personal past, or your your family or national past, you you choose to carry. Uh, here, there there is not that luxury. Uh, that's that's not only true for Israel; it's very true for the Middle East. You know, events that happened. A uh, hundred or two hundred years ago, are considered virtually contemporary here, mm-hmm. because the the extended memory of of Jews and, and Arabs goes back uh, a contiguous memory uh, uh, to uh, to millennia. So the strength of that experience is that you 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 don't feel you don't feel cut off. Your 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 reality tends to be pretty defined the the obviously the negative uh, expression of that is is that you you can get boxed in to the past and and your options can be can be very narrow mm-hmm. I, it also st- it seems to me that you can get lost in the complexity of it i mean right which past do you choose to get boxed into right. <laughs> right. i mean so in the, in the old city yesterday uh uh a mosque used to be a church. A church used to be a mosque. I mean, there have been layers of history. Mm-hmm. There was a very striking moment to me where um, our tour guide was to telling the story, I believe, of the Dome of the Rock. I mean, one of those. I mean, but it could have been any number of places. And and then he said, and then the Crusaders came and they put crosses mm-hmm. on the roof and. He said, but they were only here for 200 years, so they really couldn't make much of a difference. I mean, he said that absolutely, they were only exactly. here for 200 years, so they couldn't do very much. Right. But he, but he also still feels the outrage of that. Yes. I mean, that was it, true. It was a thousand years ago, but you it was know, a thousand years ago. Did. It was only 200 years. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but then there are the moments in the old city, which as an American, I think you experience as very baffling. And again, this goes to the difference of our histories and the relative youth, you know, and that kind of the clean slate of American history, although, of course, it wasn't a clean slate. So he was pointing out one of the few buildings where on one level there's a Christian family and lives in and on another level the Jewish family and another level a Muslim family. And he said, you know, this is so unusual that they go, they walk through the same door, they have a key to the same door to enter mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the places they live in and 
that's hard. That's hard to grasp um, for an American. You know, it's interesting. Just I, I hadn't thought of it this way, but just listening to you, I, 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 I think that our challenge here, for those of us who live with a, within an historical consciousness, is to prove that one can, can honor the past and, and be in dialogue with the past but not be imprisoned by it. That, I think, is really the challenge of, uh, of Arabs and Jews in this conflict. Mm. And, and I look, as someone who grew up in America right. and, and, and left... Uh, and I, you grew up in Brooklyn. I mean, you know what it's like where all kinds of people are living on top of each other yes, all the time. Yes, and I grew right? up in the 60s. And I, and, I, and I bring that sensibility with me here. So in a way, I feel that, that clash between um, the expansiveness and the, the limitless possibility of, of the American present and future and that deep sense of honoring the past and how important it is and not to feel oneself adrift in, in history. So in some way, I, I, I suppose that the journey that I took into Islam and Christianity was an attempt to bring together that American sensibility with, with the reality of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's actually very useful to me, Krista. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett on Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, Thin Places, Thick Realities, in Jerusalem with Israeli journalist Yossi Klein-Halevi. He's a frequent commentator in American and Israeli media and a contributing editor to The New Republic. So let's talk about the complex reality of Jewish identity, Israeli identity, which again is multi-layered. And also the categories, even if you can use words like left and right, center, they don't translate. So I wonder if you would describe that landscape. Well, I, the, um, I think the, that built in to Israeli identity is a fundamental clash of, of sensibilities. The religious sensibility sees the creation of Israel, the existence of Israel, as a miracle, as a, as a providential act, uh, the fulfillment of, of, uh, of prophecies that go back thousands of years, and especially the, the circumstances under which uh, Israel was created, that we moved from, from the Holocaust directly into sovereignty, uh, which is to say from our worst historical nightmare into our greatest historical fantasy, dream. Right. Right. And, and the ability, I think, of, of the Jewish people to make that abrupt shift, uh, this kind of uh, alchemy of turning a nightmare into dream uh, is, is the, the stuff of, of Judaism. It, it, it is the validation of Judaism. And I think that any previous generation of believing Jews who would have been able to see our time would have instantly identified this as the fulfillment of, of, of all that Judaism claimed would happen and believed about how the Jewish story would, would end. So 
in that sense, the, the, the religious Jew looks at, at the state of Israel and sees the fulfillment of, of what he or she believes. The secular Israeli looks at exactly you talked about the how how reality looks can look so different. Right. It isn't only between Arabs and Jews. Right. It's within it's it's among Jewish Israelis. So the secular Israeli looks at the same event, the founding of Israel, and says Israel became a reality only once the Jews revolted against passivity against this, the religious faith that God will one day, through the Messiah, and gather the Jews back to this land. And we took our fate in our own hands. Zionism was a profoundly secular movement. Right. And so the, the secular Israeli says, the state is, the, is proof of the absence of a guiding hand in history. So it's, it's, and that's built into the existence of Israel let alone all of the, the issues that, that, that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis here. So what's the proportion? Do you know what the proportion is of secular Israeli Jew, uh, secular or religious Israelis? It, it, there's a spectrum here. And it isn't a, a society divided between secular and religious. Mm-hmm. That, that tends to be the perception abroad, but it's much more nuanced. Mm-hmm. So you have... Um, up to 10% ultra-Orthodox, uh, another 10 or 15% modern Orthodox. Then you have a very large percentage of traditional. And traditional can mean anything, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's people who identify themselves as traditional, who have some relationship to Judaism, but don't live a strictly religious life. And hardcore secular, I would say, is probably 20%. Okay. Um, large proportion of them are Russian immigrants, maybe 25%. Mm, that's interesting. So one thing you said that I found really interesting, that for Jews, peoplehood is a religious category. Mm. So even a secular Jew has an understanding of peoplehood that would oh, look deeply. religious to someone else. I think that's true. And, and, and the, the willingness of... Israelis to sacrifice for this country, uh, to fight one war after another, to send our children to the army, uh, is is in some sense motivated by by um, I, I don't know. Let's not use the word religious, but certainly a kind of a spiritual feeling, a sense of of connectedness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and a certain transcendent stake in 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 this story. And, and a sense that this story means something that's really worth defending. Right. But I would also say that it's, it's not just that, that many secular Israelis uh, feel a stake in Judaism. It's that Judaism itself validates a, a, a non-religious Jewish identity right. to some right. extent. Right. I, don't, I don't want to overstate it, mm-hmm. but, but if you are a, an a Jewish atheist, mm-hmm. and that's true globally. This statement oh, very you just much made, so. very it's not much just so. in Israel. No, right. of course. And you and you have a sense of attachment to the Jewish people, to the Jewish story. You raise your children with Jewish values. Then you are a, depending on who you ask, but a, a Jew in reasonably good standing. You're you're certainly part of the story. You're you you can be a heretic, and not be totally cut off from Judaism. Mm-hmm. 
I, I don't know if you know that I did some, we, we did some work, a show on Einstein, and then we did a book that kind of grew out of that I this do year. Know, yeah. and, and, and one of the interesting pieces of that was um, Einstein's, his spiritual imagination. I mean, he did not have any, he didn't believe in a transcendent God, but he did have a spiritual, rich yes. spiritual imagination and an ethical imagination. And I remember something he said that he came to revere more and more about Judaism was that it, this is a paraphrase, I think, but that at at the essence, it is about life as we live it, as we live it and can know it, mm-hmm. and nothing else. That it was that how do you live rather than what do you believe mm-hmm. emphasis in Judaism. Yeah, I think it comes. I think you can trace that to the seminal moment of the formation of the Jewish people, which was the revelation at Mount Sinai, and uh, the biblical text is as this very strange moment where where the Jews say to God, Na'asevinishma, we will do and we will listen or we will obey. And the doing comes before the understanding. Right. And and I think that that's really in some sense wired into into the Jewish experience, that there is a sense that you you live the life, you you um you engage with Judaism and it creates its own reality. Now, I respect that, and I and I I, I appreciate it, but I'm not fully satisfied with mm-hmm. it uh, as a religious Jew, as a, as someone who is is connected to the mystical side of Judaism, and and who feels that that the quest for a living relationship with a personal God uh, is too often displaced. In modern Judaism, mm-hmm. we too often emphasize that this worldliness of Judaism, and and there's a whole vast tradition that we've displaced, which is um, the same mystical needs and longings that one finds in other religious traditions, and has been buried mm-hmm. in Judaism uh, by a modern rationalist uh, Jewish approach. So I, I'm 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 not fully I'm not, I'm not fully with Einstein on that. Yeah, <laughs> if I may disagree yeah, with him, you may. <laughs> um, I think he also was very clear that he was an expert on physics and not an expert <laughs> on religion. How do you think about? You know this this complex uh, reality of identity that we've been talking about. Even these divisions within Judaism and these parallel identities of mm-hmm. Christians, Jews, Muslims, even in the in the especially let's say in a city like Jerusalem. How do you think about God in terms of that kind of identity, or what what aspects of the tradition for you speak to that? Um, both in terms of how you explain it or how you might find that dissatisf- unsatisfactory. I don't know. Do you mean in terms of, of a Jewish approach to religious pluralism or yeah. to understanding the different faces of God? Is this? Well, I don't know. Maybe that is that one way you think about it, that there are different faces Very of God? How, so. do you, how do you look at this fact of, yeah, as I say, parallel as opposed to even coexistent uh, identities, even within Judaism, and think about the nature of God and kind of add those things up. In terms of um, 
of my relationship as a Jew with other faiths, the constant struggle being in this reality, being, being in, in Jerusalem, is to be rooted in your own tradition, in your, in your own faith. And, and Jerusalem demands that because everyone here is rooted in their specificity. And, and how do I, as a religious Jew, manage to, and this is really an extension of what we were speaking about earlier, how do I manage to be faithful to my understanding of reality and at the same time accommodate alternative readings of reality? And Jerusalem does not take kindly to religious pluralism. The way in which we, we measure religious tolerance in this city is by the distance that we're able to safely maintain mm-hmm. among the faiths. And there's good historic reason for that, because the more the, more the faiths get closer, the more they touch each other, the more they, they start to infringe on each other's sacred spaces. So you try to maintain distance here. And I don't think that that model is, is suitable anymore for, uh, for this city at this time. I, I believe very strongly that Jerusalem needs to be a, a model for a more expansive uh, sense of religious identity and pluralism. But I, I struggle with that because when you're so caught up in your own story, especially in, in a situation of conflict, you can't separate religion from, from the, the conflict that we're living, from the fears, uh, the, the, the historic grievances that we're all carrying in this conflict. Mm-hmm. And how do I relate to, to other religions from a more universal place without sacrificing my particular identity? And Jerusalem, if you can manage at least sometimes, to overcome your own fears and, and, and grievances. It's all here. It's, it's so obvious when, when you open yourself to it what, what God is saying to humanity in this city. And my understanding is that God is saying to us, I've spoken to each of you faith communities in, in a language that you can understand but look around you and look at the devotion that's surrounding you and how can you not be moved? Uh, how can I as a Jew not be moved by the monastic communities that, are, that, that cherish this city? How can I not be moved by the love and, and the devotion that Muslims have lavished on what for me is the focal point of sacred space on the planet, which is the Temple Mount, mm. and look at how Islam has beautified the Temple Mount. Mm. So it's, it's certainly, that building is certainly more beautiful than, uh, than any synagogue that I know. And, and I can cherish that as a religious person, uh, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Other times I feel threatened by the Muslim presence on the Temple Mount, uh, which is trying to exclude me, which says you as a Jew don't have a place here. So it's so complicated.
Complicated is the first word that rolls off the tongue after being in Jerusalem. This is the second voice we've brought to the air from our March production trip to Israel and the West Bank. And in that span of time, there's been new violence on both sides of that Israeli-Palestinian divide. Our first program with Mohammed Darausha, which we called Children of Both Identities, was a window inside one identity that straddles that divide, the world of Arab citizens of Israel. We'll be unfolding other uncommon perspectives in coming months, including my conversation in East Jerusalem with the wise Palestinian philosopher Sari Naseba. Right now on our blog at onbeing.org, you'll find three surprising angles of vision from journalism student Kristen Davis, a Jewish community builder in Haifa who creates casual human encounters between Arabs and Jews through walking clubs and photography classes. Also, an Arab-Israeli professor in Galilee who partners with a Jewish university in Jerusalem and a group of Palestinians and Israelis who use social media to share stories of their loved ones killed in that conflict. Coming up, how secular modernity forces vastly different religious people into a whole new relationship. On some level, we're all implicated in each other's spiritual failures. So that if there's a suicide bomber who kills innocents in the name of the Muslim God, for the secular world, that isn't just a crime that implicates Islam. It implicates religion. Look at what religion does. And that really creates a, a forced commonality among religious people that I think is, is going to create the grounds, has to create the grounds, for us to move toward a more pluralistic understanding. I'm Krista Tippett. This program comes to you from APM American Public Media. On Being is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Today on Being, Thin Places, Thick Realities, in Jerusalem with Yossi Klein-Halevi. This is the second in our series of conversations from Israel and the West Bank, unfolding the many faces of identity there. We went looking for realities and possibilities hidden by breaking news headlines. Yossi Klein-Halevi is an American-born Israeli journalist and writer. He articulates and lives the complex nature of Jewish-Israeli identity. And he experiences the Holy Land as a place where not merely religion, but the essential human story is played out with particular intensity. I sat down with him at the Shalom Hartman Institute, a kind of think tank for Jewish life in modernity, where he's a fellow. So, yes, yeah, I keep thinking of this beautiful Celtic image of thin places. Do you, are you aware of that language? No. Uh, that there are thin places, thin times, where the veil between... The temporal and the eternal is worn thin where it comes through. Um, but it's a very beautiful, gentle image. I mean, I, I think of it in terms of, oh, I've thought of it at being in monasteries, right, where you, you feel there's, there's a presence. Uh, you feel that the distance between humanity and the divine, whatever that is, is not quite so vast. And it's as much a, an experience as something you can put words around. Um, 
another place that phrase got used was uh, uh, there was a little chapel next to Ground Zero where the emergency workers were treated. Oh, I've been there. Yeah. yeah, and people referred to that as a thin place. Mm-hmm. Wonderful language. <laughs> it's wonderful language, and it keeps coming to me here. <laughs> But it feels to me like it's much too mild for the reality of Jerusalem. I mean, this is almost like a place where the veil is, where it's seeping and <laughs> flooding. It's, 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 Do you know what I'm saying? It's a thin place in a much. thick reality. You know, it's that's too much. Exactly. It's like humanity can't handle much. it. Yeah. I, I think, especially maybe for people who are not religious, the idea that, that this holy city... And these, where these most sacred sites for so many people are concentrated, should be a place where these great transcendent virtues of religion should come to the fore. You know, Krista, the, the religion and the place where I feel most in resonance with outside of this land is Hinduism in India. Mm-hmm. Because I think that, that there is a basic wisdom in India about the nature of this world. And there's something in me, and this is a, my, my strong Israeli sensibility, uh, that rejects the Western need for religion to be nice and safe. I understand that. I understand that need. But I see religion as struggling with the deepest contradictions of our being souls trapped in bodies, mm. of our being in this world where we don't fundamentally belong. And, and Hinduism understands that. And I think Judaism understands that. The Bible is not a pretty book. It's, I mean, we were talking it's about this. It's a messy book. It's a really messy yeah. book. The, the heroes of the Bible... Just like human life is messy. Exactly. And so I feel very strongly that the Jews have returned home in order to, in some sense, try to get the Bible right this time. And the Bible is not, a, a, in the end, an uplifting story of the success of the Jewish people. It's, it's, it's a very strange ancient myth because it's not celebratory. It's relentlessly self-critical. And, and I feel that we are, in some sense, writing the next chapter of the Bible in our return here. And that means that we have to carry all of our history into this reality. We have to try to, in some sense, make sense of it. What does it mean that we came home right after the Holocaust? What does it mean that we're in the middle of a seemingly hopeless struggle with another indigenous people that that has a powerful claim to the same land that we have a powerful claim to. How do we resolve that? All of the issues of religion and state that's convulsing the whole world and that's concentrated with particular vehemence in our lives here, partly because this is such a small place and everything is so intimate here and everything matters all the time. There's no break here. Right, right. But I see that as a fulfillment of what the Jews are supposed to be doing in the world at this time. And that, for me, is, is not a... The very messiness is the point of it. Mm. You said something about... I think this is echoing what you just said. Uh, 
that this is a place where the human story is being played out with particular intensity right. and that what's at stake here is is precisely an important part of what makes us human, what makes all of us human. Yes. This is a place that that changed the world and and the religions, the, 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 the prophecy, the force that came out of this land 2,000 years ago has helped define what humanity is. And, and I think that that's why the world is so riveted to this place, mm-hmm. sometimes in absurd ways. We have more journalists here, foreign journalists, than almost any other place in the world. Uh, every little shift in the conflict is front-page news around the world. Right. And, and we're living under a microscope. And Israelis are driven mad by that. And, and to some extent, they're right when they say, you know, there's a double standard. You apply this relentless moral critique to Israel that you certainly don't, don't apply to our Arab neighbors, and virtually no other country in the world is subjected to that same relentless critique. Uh, on the other hand, as a religious person, I feel, well, if that's the nature of the game, we're, we're playing for very high stakes here. And, and Judaism makes some very powerful claims about the nature of Jewish history. And, and in our self-understanding, the Jewish story is about God taking a people, which is a random group of people, no better or no worse than any other people, and using this people as a test case for what happens when you have divine intimacy with human beings. It's not a group of saints, the Jewish right, people. Right. And that's precisely the point. And in the Jewish understanding of this very intense and often unhappy relationship between God and the Jewish people, we're a test case for the eventual divine intimacy and revelation with all of humanity, which is the messianic age. So we make some very powerful claims about the nature of Jewish history. And I feel looking at Israel's reality that, well, okay, well, how else could this story after 4,000 years possibly turn out except with this people in this impossible situation (laughs) back in its land and the whole world peering in all the time and judging every move that we make? We set that story up for ourselves, and we have to, to some extent, accept that as the ground rules. I'm Krista Tippett on Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, Thin Places, Thick Realities, in Jerusalem with Israeli journalist Yossi Klein-Halevi. You know, as we're speaking, these tensions and and even the violence uh, that is part of the reality here uh, goes on. And there are these uprisings in um, places like Egypt and Tunisia and Libya all playing out differently in those Things different keep countries. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, your despair comes through, as does... Uh, I, I think a hope. I've heard you say a few times in the last couple of days that that in the short term you're not hopeful, but that you you do have some hope in the medium and long term. I mean, talk to me about how you can envision that, because even for all of the 
the excitement and the you know the vastness of of what it means just that Israel exists for you um, there's there's so much both things that happen in real time every day and that weight of history behind them that makes it hard impossible to imagine real breakthrough I think that the the source of my short-term despair and of my long-term hope uh, is the same, and it's, and it's rooted in religion. The question for this region, and maybe, maybe in some way for the world, is, is religion going to be um, part of healing, or is it going to intensify the, the destructive process? And certainly the way things appear to be going in the Middle East uh, religion is very much part of the problem. Um, more and more, this conflict is becoming overtly religious. Uh, the 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 front line war against Israel is being led by by jihadist movements, by Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, Iran, of course. So that the even the language of this conflict in the last. Ten years or so, with the suicide bombings in the early 2000s, has really changed. It's no longer pretending to be a national conflict over land. It's very much a, a, a religious conflict. And on and on the Jewish side, we have uh, certainly the um, uh, the the settler movement is is fused by religious claims. Uh, although within Israeli Judaism, there's been for many years a very important debate about the place of religion in in the peace process and um, whether one is permitted to exchange sacred land for peace. And there is a substantial body of religious opinion that affirms a land for peace agreement. And I think that Islam is capable of making that same transition, or at least part of Islam is. And, And... what gives me hope is that I believe in faith. I believe in the basic wisdom of religion to rise to the occasion. Not immediately, and not always, and not before necessarily exhausting all of the negative capabilities. <laughs> but I think that more and more religious people are feeling a, a justified sense of shame. And what I find hopeful about this moment in history, and this doesn't only apply to our conflict, is that with the creation of a secular space, religion now occupies a common ground. Because in the past, in in pre-secular times, the only way to identify yourself against others was, I believe in this and you you believe in my God is this and your God is that. Now we have a whole space in which there is no God. So that those of us who believe in God are, however unhappily, put in the same space. And that means on some level, we're all implicated in each other's Hmm. spiritual failures. So that if there's a suicide bomber who kills innocents in the name of, of the Muslim God, for the secular world, that isn't just a crime that implicates Islam. It implicates religion. Look at what religion does. Mm -hmm. And that really creates a a forced commonality 
among religious people that I think is, is going to create the grounds, has to create the grounds, mm. for us to move toward a more pluralistic understanding. And you said something very striking um, the other night when we were speaking. You said you also had an, uh, an idea that change, at least in the hearts of the Israelis, m- might be something that could be instantaneous, right? You, you talked about the moment when Sadat, was mm-hmm. it, did he come to Jerusalem? Or, oh, yeah. And you said that that was uh, kind of a, a miraculous, sudden change of heart and mind, and that, that for you... Uh, even with all of this complexity that we've been describing, that that's also how you imagine uh, how the future might look different. Not only in the hearts of Israelis, I think very much uh, in the hearts of Arabs too. If we're using Sadat as a uh, as a reference point, and, and and I think it's worth going back to that moment. Yeah, would you tell that story? Because, because it's 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 I think one of the great lost moments of uh, of transcendence. Uh, in, uh, in, in the recent history of the Middle East. Uh, in 1977, November 1977, Anwar Sadat, who was the president of Egypt, uh, flew to, to Israel and was welcomed by Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin and given literally and figuratively the red carpet treatment and he spoke in the in Knesset, the Israeli parliament. Israelis lined the streets, waving Egyptian flags. Uh, the radio played uh, peace songs. Uh, and then Menachem Begin went to visit Egypt. I think he was in, went to Alexandria. And the same thing happened over there. Tens of thousands of Egyptians cheered the Israeli prime minister. Now, bear in mind who Anwar Sadat was and who Menachem Begin was. Four years earlier, Anwar Sadat had launched a surprise attack against Israel on Yom Kippur, our holiest day. There was no more hated man in this country than Anwar Sadat. Hmm. Menachem Begin, who had just come to power a few months earlier, was the first Likud prime minister who broke 29 years of labor hegemony the Labour Party, the left had ruled this country. For the first time, we had a right-wing prime minister. And the media around the world, and and much of the media in Israel, uh, greeted Menachem Begin's rise to power, saying, the hawks have taken over, and it's just a matter of time before the Middle East is going to be plunged into the next war. And instead, Sadat comes to Israel, is embraced as a hero. There are streets named after Sadat in this country. And Menachem Begin responds by withdrawing from every inch of the Sinai Desert, which was almost four times the territorial size of Israel, and which Israel had conquered in the Six-Day War as in a preemptive measure. And Israelis were convinced that we're never going to leave the Sinai. That was our military buffer with Egypt. Mm. So that was a moment of, of almost messianic impossibility. And, and every so often in, in, in the history of Israel, we find ourselves in a moment that's almost metaphysical, meta-historical. 
I experienced that with the, the mass airlift of Ethiopian Jews. It happened shortly after I, I, I moved to Israel in 1982. And then suddenly thousands of Ethiopian Jews barefoot in white robes, wide-eyed, step off of these planes. They'd never seen a plane, let alone been on a plane. And they step out from Ethiopia into, into the postmodern world. But for them, this is Zion. This is the biblical story. And it was one of those moments that we, we all realized we're in a story that's more than just the conflict or our daily life. There's something else going on here. There's a transcendent dimension. And that's what gives me hope here. And certainly that's what brought me to Israel in the first place. And for all of the, the disappointments and the failures and the tragedies that I've experienced in the 30 years that I've lived here, the sense of the transcendent and the, the possibility of the miraculous remains as alive for me as, as ever. Yossi Klein Halevi is a fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem and a contributing editor to The New Republic. His books include Memoirs of a Jewish Extremist and At the Entrance to the Garden of Eden, A Jew's Search for God with Christians and Muslims in the Holy Land. Listen to this conversation again or my unedited interview in Jerusalem with Yossi Klein-Halevi. That's on our website at onbeing.org. There you can also discover our first program from Israel with Mohammed Darausha. And as Israeli-Palestinian developments move again to the forefront of world news, we're following other journalism that echoes some of the human insights we gained on the ground. On our blog, we've posted a piece from The Guardian newspaper that notes a disconnect between burgeoning Palestinian civic energies and the relatively narrow media and diplomatic focus on high-level political solutions. We're also featuring a piece right now on Yom HaShoah, the Holocaust Remembrance Day that just passed. Find all of this at onbeing.org or at facebook.com slash onbeing, where we are discovering new possibilities for substantive human interaction online. This program is produced by Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Susan Leem. Anne Breckbill is our web developer. Special thanks this week to Fouad Abu-Ghosh. Trent Gillis is our senior editor. Kate Moose is executive producer. And I'm Krista Tippett. Supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. Additional support comes from the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. 
and the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, Driven by Flavor, with celebrated young chef, thinker, and social visionary Dan Barber. Pleasure is his way into what he calls the greatest social movement of our time. And an insistence on flavor, he says, is critical to repairing our ecologies and economies. Please join us. This is APM American Public Media.